Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. If you're a guest or visitor, uh, we are glad that you're with us. And normally, we don't uh, have these sort of technical problems. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Okay, so we are uh, in the Psalms this morning, as we have been all summer long. And we are looking at Psalm 95, Psalm 95. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 95 or follow along in your order of service. It's printed there for you. Um, and Psalm 95 is a praise psalm. This is uh, the first praise psalm that we've actually come to this summer, which is interesting because this is probably how we often think about the psalms as praises, adoration to the Lord. But so far, we've looked at lament and messianic, royal and creational psalms. But now we're looking at a praise psalm. But what's fascinating about this particular praise psalm is that it's not just about praise. You see, half of it is about adoration, about worship, but the other half is a warning. It's a warning about where not to find rest and subsequently where it is that God's people are to find rest, and it's in the Lord. And so those are the two things we're going to look at this morning as we look at this psalm. We're going to look at the rest that we're invited into and then the worship that is, uh, that is that God calls us to give him. So let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for this past week, um, whenever I've had opportunity, I've been in the car or maybe I've been in my study um, and I've been able to have music in the background. I've been listening constantly this week to Arcade Fire's new album, Everything Now. Anybody else been listening to that? No. Okay. I'm the only one. Wonderful. Well, uh, have other people heard of Arcade Fire? Okay, a handful of y'all. Well, Arcade Fire is a wonderful band. They're one of my favorite bands. They're Canadian, so that, that makes them good. But, um, but more than that, uh, Arcade Fire is a very strange band. Um, their music is very weird. In fact, this week as I was listening to them and uh, Kat overheard the music, that's the exact phrase she used. This is weird. I don't want to listen to this. Um, and uh, that's probably how many of you would think about it. And it is a little bit strange. But the reason why I like Arcade Fire isn't because the music is different or it's strange. It's because of the way in which they look upon the world around us and they talk about it. They sing about it. They reflect upon the, the difficult circumstances and situations that we're constantly confronted with. And so this particular album does that. It has strange music, and yet the lyrics are so depth deep and and they deal with difficult and dark topics that people in our world are confronted by 
Well, there's this one song on this album called uh, Infinite Content. Infinite content. That's how, that's how it goes. That phrase, infinite content, is repeated 15 times over the course of one minute and 37 seconds. Infinite content, infinite content. That's how it goes, just like that. And the music tied with this phrase, infinite content, feels like a machine gun just pounding you for a minute and 37 seconds. And I'm, as I'm listening, you're, you're getting tired. You're exhausted from just hearing this. Your soul feels anxious as they are pounding you with this phrase, infinite content. And it becomes very clear what they're trying to do. You see, they're trying to demonstrate audibly what we experience visually every single day. That we are confronted, that we are forced with, that we are bombarded with an infinite amount of content every single day. That we see things all the time, that we have advertisements just pounding our brains and our hearts again and again and again. That's what they're trying to communicate, and, and they're right, that is true. This past week, as I was listening to Infinite Content, I was reading an article on a marketing website that's, that said that we are exposed to between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements every single day. 4,000 and 10,000. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that's hyperbole. Surely that cannot be true. And that's what the uh, author of the article thought as well. So he started counting the number of advertisements he was exposed to. And so he, he woke up one morning and he started counting, like, the, uh, the label on your shirt and the, the logo on the toothpaste and the sound that comes from his TV. And before he even made it to breakfast, he had counted 487 pieces of content. 487 before breakfast. He hasn't even left his house, right? He hasn't turned on the internet. He hasn't driven down the street. So he stopped counting. <laughs> and he figured between 4,000 and 10,000 sounds about right. And all of these pieces of content, all of these advertisements, all of these things that we are bombarded with, they're all wanting a piece of your soul. They're wanting a piece of your heart. They want you to give your allegiance to them. And, you know, we cons consistently go from one to the next because we are looking for something that will satisfy our soul. We are looking for something that will give rest to our hearts. And so we go from one thing to the other. We have an infinite amount of content that we can look to, and we hop from one thing to another until we find rest. You know, this isn't just true of 21st century Americans. Uh, the 4th and 5th century Bishop of Hippo, St. Augustine, he was trying to find rest as well, rest for his soul. And he looked to things like sex and immoral behavior. He looked to uh, intellectual pursuits and rhetoric. And after he had exhausted all of these things, he then wrote in his autobiography, Confessions, that mankind is restless. Our hearts are restless. And he's right. We are restless. Moving from one thing to another, hoping that the next thing that has promised to give us rest, give us satisfaction, will finally give it to us. Our hearts are restless. But the truth is, is that all of these things, this infinite content, these things that are trying to appeal to our hearts, the truth is, is that none of them will actually give us the rest that we are longing for. 
See, that's what the psalmist is telling us in Psalm 95. You see it at the end, in the warning portion of the passage, which is from the end of verse 7 until 11. He says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. Now, Massah and Meribah, that's invoking the Exodus story. So if you remember, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt, and they're being led out by Moses out of Egypt, and they're moving towards the promised land. And as they are wandering, as they are walking in the desert towards this land, they find themselves in the desert, and they start saying things like, Moses, why did you ever lead us out of Egypt? Surely you brought us out so that we would die. There is no water. Do you intend to kill us? They had just been delivered out of 400 years of slavery, and now they're complaining and grumbling. They're testing the Lord. That's what Massah means, to test. They are complaining and quarreling against God's appointed leader, Moses. That's what Meribah means, to quarrel. They're not entering into God's rest with faith, but instead they're questioning his goodness. And the result is verse 11. God says, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this is a clear reference to the promised land that the people were moving towards because once they reached the promised land, they would enter into God's presence and they would have rest because they would be in the presence of the Lord. Now, the psalmist isn't talking about the promised land because he's already in the land. He's talking about a a greater promise, a greater rest. He's looking towards the ultimate rest, our salvation. And so the point is, is that we could be like Israel. We could quarrel with the Lord. We could be like Augustine and we could go searching for satisfaction in things like sex and career. We could be like many people in our day, looking for satisfaction in the approval of others. Be it parent or child, friend or neighbor. But the truth is, whether we are like Israel or Augustine or like our friends in our day and age, the truth is, is that our hearts will always be restless until they enter into the rest of the Lord. And that's what this psalm is inviting us into. It's inviting us into it by way of warning. Do not harden your hearts, but instead enter into God's rest. Enter into his rest and That's what he says. We enter into God's rest, and what this looks like, what it looks like to enter into his rest is to trust in him. The people at Meribah, the people at Massah, they did not put their trust and faith in God, but they questioned and they quarreled. But we can enter into his rest by trusting him, and we can trust him because of verse 7. Look, he says, the psalmist, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We are God's sheep, so subsequently, God is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. That means he protects us. He cares for us. He leads us. We know that in order for the sheep to survive, they had to follow the shepherd. That left on their own, they were in danger, and the same is true of us. That's why things like sex and money, family, and career, they're not enough to give us rest. Then when we're looking into these things, we are looking to provide We're not looking for true rest. We're ultimately looking for false rest. 
God is our shepherd. He is the one whose presence he gives us, his protection and his care. And the fascinating thing is that the way in which he goes about doing this is in a way that is unique to any other shepherd because he actually gives himself. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And that's a not very subtle way of Jesus associating himself with the shepherd of the Old Testament. And in there, Jesus is saying that the God of the Old Testament, the shepherd of the Old Testament, is the God of the New Testament, is the shepherd of the New Testament. And Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He gives of himself on the cross. He rises again so that we would not face the consequences of our sin. That we would not go searching any longer, but that we would have his presence given to us so that we would have rest, so that the search would be no more. That we could rest in him. This is why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. He quotes the warning portion of this psalm. And he says that in there that we are to hold fast to our faith in Christ. That we are to put our trust in him. And in so doing we enter his rest. That is what he gives us. That is what we are to do. We are to put our trust, our faith in This one who comes to us, who offers us this rest. That's why the author of this psalm says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, not tomorrow, not next week, not in a month, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but come to him. Enter into his rest. Hear his voice and receive him. Okay, so what do we do with that, though? So we enter into his rest. We come into his presence. Well, what do we do? We don't just enter into his rest. We also enter into worship. There's something fascinating going on here that that our English Bibles, um, you have to know Hebrew to see. (laughs) I'll just say it that way. So um, in verse 6, there's this fascinating thing occurring. So it says, oh, come, let us worship. Now, that word come, actually, we see it three times, that word, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 6. Each time, that's a different Hebrew verb even though we're translating it the same way in the English. And what's fascinating is that in verse 6, that O come, is the same Hebrew verb that we see in verse 11 for enter. Do you all see that? So with the way we could translate verse 6 is, O enter, let us worship and bow down. Enter into his presence. Enter into worship. Let us call upon his name. Do not be like the people at Massah and Meribah who would not enter into his rest, but when you enter in, you enter with worship. That's what the psalmist is saying. And that's what we're to do. That as we come into God's presence, as we take hold of the rest that is offered in Christ, that we worship him. And that's what I want us to spend the remainder of our time looking at. Worship and what worship is to look like because that's half the psalm. What is adoration supposed to be? Because worship is the appropriate expression of the rest that we have. So there's three things that we see in this psalm that tell us what worship is to look like. The first is that it's corporate. It's corporate. We hear it in verses 1 through 7. Ten times we have the plural being used. We have corporate language being used. Do you hear it? Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us worship. Let us kneel. He is our maker, our God. We are his. Do you hear it? It's not me and God. It's y'all and God. It's us and God. 
It's all y'all in God. It's not just me. Some theologians think that this psalm was actually sung as people went to the temple for worship. So you can imagine, can't you, the psalmist is going up, and he's not just kind of walking along humming to himself, like, off I go to worship. You know, what is he doing? He's calling to his neighbors and his friends. Come, let us come to the temple. Let us come into his presence. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us go. He's calling. He's inviting others into the worship of this one true God, this corporate aspect of worship. You see, friends, worship is communal. It's not just individual. It is communal. In fact, this modern idea that I can just sit in my room by myself um, and, and worship God at the expense. I can sing. I can uh, watch a sermon online. I can do a podcast. This modern idea that I can do that at the expense of corporate worship is that. It is a modern idea that is birthed more out of an individualistic idea uh, coming out of modernity than it is the Bible. We are called. Now, look, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to worship on our own. Like, still do family devotions, right? Those are really good. Read your Bible by yourself. Sing. Make a joyful noise by yourself in your room. That might be the only joyful time, right? The only joyful noise. Um, but, but do those things, but not at the expense of corporate worship. That idea is so foreign to the Bible. That is foreign to the Bible. By the way, this, just as a side note, this is why I'm philosophically opposed to us uh, live streaming sermons. I don't have a problem with this showing them later, but I don't want y'all staying home and watching. We need to be here together, calling out to God. This isn't just an Old Testament principle. It's a New Testament one as well. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you hear that? Not neglecting to meet together. The implication is, is that we would meet together, that we would make every effort to be with God's people. I've said it before, and I'll say it this morning, and you'll probably hear it from me like a million times over the next 40 years that I'm with you or however long. But this means that I need you. I need you for my worship. And you need me, and we need one another. That's what that means. That, that the full expression of my personal worship isn't when I am by myself, but is when I am with God's people. That that is how God has made us. That worship would be a corporate, communal endeavor. So worship is corporate. The second thing I want you to notice is that worship is physical. It's physical. So notice the expectation of the psalmist in verse 1. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us sing and make a joyful noise. Now, we're comfortable with that. We've already sung, and we're going to sing again. We're comfortable with standing and opening our mouths. This, this is a physical thing to sing. We don't just do it in our minds. We don't just do it in our hearts. Our, our vocal cords vibrate, right? It's a physical thing that we do. Make a joyful noise, right? I know that um, my noise is not joyful to those who hear me, and yet to the Lord it is that. 
because it's directed to him. But it's a noise. It's not contained in the recesses of my mind or my heart. We are to stand and sing and call out to him. Now, we don't have a problem with that. As Presbyterians, uh, we sing. It's maybe the next part that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Look at verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. Now, I imagine that some of us, because of our uh, discomfort in kind of the physical aspects of worship, might try and uh, make this out to just be a metaphor, right? Like, I'm supposed to bow down in in my heart. And uh, those passages that talk about raise your hands, those psalms, right? Because they're in there, right? Okay, good, they are. Um, (laughs) Believe, yes, they are. I know y'all are trying, like, Penny's going to make us raise our hands, so I'm not going to say I've read that part. (laughs) But we think, well, I'm just going to raise the hands in my mind, right? I'm just going to imagine myself raising my hands. So this is a metaphor. And it is true that, that there is supposed to be this posture of submission, of reverence, of, of adoration that takes place in our hearts and our minds. But if we could go back in time and talk to this psalmist, or if we could talk to David, who you know, said things like, raise your hands in worship, um, and we said, well, this is clearly just a metaphor for the state of my heart, right? I'm pretty sure they would look at us kind of funny. Like a metaphor? What are you talking about? See, worship, friends, it's physical. It's whole-bodied. And when we simply contain it to our minds and our hearts, what we're doing is tacitly adopting a Gnostic understanding of our humanity. What I mean by that is that when we do that, when we limit it simply to the internal parts of our being, we are denying the goodness of our physicality. God made you with hands and with a mouth and with knees and with feet. And he said, your physicality is very good. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around. We're going to have new bodies, physical bodies. It's very good. And so it's appropriate for us to worship physically not just with our souls and our hearts and our minds, but our souls and our bodies, our spirits and our physicality. They are psychosomatically united together in worship so that physically we have the posture of the inward of our heart. I mean, this is why we stand up and we sit down in worship, right? Like y'all have already been physical, We stood up and we sat down. It's not just to get the blood flowing so y'all won't fall asleep, right? Because we know that doesn't work. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But that's not why we do it, right? We stand up and we sit down. We bow our heads in prayer. We lift our eyes to heaven. We do responsive readings. We say the peace of Christ be with you and also with you. This is why at the end of the service, oftentimes, as I am ready to declare the benediction, what do I say? Stretch forth your hands. Stretch forth your hands and receive the Lord's blessing. Because think about that physical posture. My hands are reached out. They are open. There is nothing in them. God, I am longing for your blessing. Fill my hands. Let me hold onto the blessing of God. 
Stretch forth your hands and receive the benediction of the Lord. Our physicalness. And we are to be full-bodied worshipers. Now listen, I know that some of y'all are starting to feel very nervous. <laughs> and that's okay, because we're Presbyterians. That's, that's all right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, what's probably going through your head is, but Penny, I don't, I don't love the idea of raising my hands. I don't love this idea of physicality because I've seen the ways in which uh, that has been used as manipulation in churches to create an emotionalism that is devoid from truth. And that is true. That has been the case. But let me just say, abuse does not negate proper use. Simply because that has been abused doesn't mean that that's not how we are to worship. I also recognize the fact that the, the expression of worship is often historically and culturally situated. And so my expectation isn't that we would worship like Puritan England, right? Oh, gosh, no. And my expectation isn't that we would worship like Africa, the churches in Africa now. And so my expectation isn't in a few minutes when we take the tithes and offering that some of y'all are going to dance down the aisle to put it in the, the offering plate like some of our brothers and sisters in Africa do. Right? I don't expect that. Okay? It also means that I don't expect that we're going to call out amen and hallelujah like some of our more energetic brothers do in worship, though some of you have from time to time, and that's really fun. Um, and I don't expect that as we approach the front at the beginning of worship that we would bow our knee as some of our liturgical sisters would. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to encourage us to is to a full-bodied understanding of worship, that worship doesn't just take place between my ears, but it takes place with my hands and with my feet and with my lungs. That we are full-bodied people, and so if you would be so bold, you can stretch forth your hands and receive the Lord's blessing. And when you hear the body of Christ broken for you, you can say, thanks be to God. And you can look at one another as we sing these songs. And as we pray, and as we lift up our eyes, that we can actually touch one another even as we sing. That is one of the most beautiful things about getting to be up front when we do worship. I get to see y'all. And to watch one another coming alongside each other with a hand on the shoulder of the person who is weeping because they are too downcast to even sing the words that we are singing and yet for God's people to touch them and to say that we are together, to feel that presence, to stand and to sit, to bow and to kneel, not just in our hearts, but with our bodies. Worship, friends, is physical it's physical, it's corporate, but most important, most important, it's theocentric. It's God-centric. At the very center of our worship, it must be the God of the Bible. Because here's the truth. Y'all like to sing? You can go join a choir. And that's a really good way to spend your time. I would commend you to do that if you're a good singer and you like it. Um, Maybe even if you're a bad singer, they'll still have you. I don't know. But, but that would be a good way to spend your time. I would commend you. Or if you like to sit and hear encouraging, interesting talks, you could go to a TED Talk or a Q gathering. That'd be a good way to spend 45 minutes. 
or if you like the social aspects, you can join a club. That's, these are all very good things. And the truth is, friends, is that those are things that we experience here on Sunday. However, the difference is, is the object of our singing, the object of our speaking, the object of our gathering together. It is not just for the sake of singing. It is not just for the interesting facts to hear about Arcade Fire. And it's not just so that we would enjoy time with one another. It is so much more than that. Because apart from the worship of God, that is all we're doing. It is a choir concert or a TED Talk or a social club. And that is not the church. We are the worshiping people of God. That we would come and we would gather and sing to the one true God. That's where the psalmist points us. Look at verse 1. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Did you hear it? The psalmist is leading us into the worship of the true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He holds the earth in his hand, and with the other one, he forms the dry land. The chaos of the sea he controls, and the heights of the mountain are lower than he is. This is the one that we come and worship. This is the one that we bow down before. There is no one else who can say this but our God. He is the object of our worship. And so we don't just sing. We don't bow before nebulous beings or, eternal or uh, uh, ethereal entities. We kneel before the king of the universe. He is the object of our worship. And to give worship to anyone else or to anything else, like career or family or notoriety or retirement, to give worship to anyone or anything else is idolatry. We don't sing and bow down to those things. We sing and bow down to the king. That's why since the very beginning, Christians have insisted that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why in the Old Testament, Daniel refused to pray to the king statues of the king and this is why the early church would not call Caesar Lord and this is why since the time of Jesus the church has insisted that there is only one rock of our salvation and it is Christ and he is the only one deserving of our worship you see our worship has to have an object and the only object that we are to worship is the God of the Bible and so friends we must center not just our worship, but our entire lives on him. Because what we do here this morning, it rolls over into our homes tomorrow and into our places of work and into our conversations with our neighbors and our communities, in our schools. He is the center of our lives and he is the object of our worship. Now, um, I know that some of you are familiar with Augustine. You've read Confessions, and so you know that I only gave a portion of his quote. That wonderful statement that our hearts are restless. You see, it comes in a fuller paragraph in which Augustine is reflecting back on his life, and he is honestly seeing that nothing is going to satisfy him. And so he calls out to God, he prays, and he says, To praise you is the desire of man. 
You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine was right. That was true in the 4th and 5th centuries and it is true today. That our hearts are restless until they rest in God. That we desire to give praise and worship, and that desire is only met in the worship of God. And so, friends, today, not tomorrow, but today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts, but turn them to Christ. Enter into his rest and worship him. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that you have called us into your presence, that you invite us into worship of you, our true God, the one true God, that you are the one who has made us and you are the one who has created the heavens and the earth. And so we give you praise. We honor you and declare you are our God and there is no other. Give us gratitude, hearts full of gratitude at all that you have done. Fill our mouths with worship and adoration because you are our God and there is no other. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and God's people said together, amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's offering.